Hey everyone, I'd like to say something about a new product I've tried called Calatrin. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calatrin is for healthy weight loss. I have taken Calatrin myself, and I can honestly confirm that I've lost weight, I sleep better, and, and I have found relief from a joint injury that I sustained in my arm. Calatrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age, and I am reaching of that age where things decrease. Taking Calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HOP two three zero six zero five, and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HOP two three zero six zero five, and I really do recommend you give this product a try. And I'll talk to you next time. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. Wars made the United States independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Hi, I'm James Early, host of the Key Battles of American History podcast. In each episode, I discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. To start listening now, Go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search Key Battles of American History on your favorite podcasting platform. Welcome to the History of the Papacy Podcast, a podcast about the history of the Popes of Rome and Christian Church. Prepare yourself to step behind the ropes and leave the official tour of the story of the popes and Christianity. I'm your host, Steve Guerra, and I thank you for joining me on this journey. You can find show notes, how to contact me, sign up for our mailing list, and how to support the history of the papacy by going to our website, a2zhistorypage.com. Two great ways to support the history of the papacy are leaving your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. And another really great way to support the history of the papacy is by going and joining us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash history of the papacy. Your support on Patreon goes a long, long way to help keep the history of the papacy sustainable for a long time in the future. There are four tiers of support on Patreon, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Rome. Each of these tiers represents one of the traditional patriarchates of early Christianity. There are many great benefits to you for supporting the show on Patreon. You will receive early and advertisement-free content, bonus episodes, monthly book drawings, and most importantly, you will be included on the history of the papacy diptychs. In traditional Christianity, the diptychs are the lists of bishops commemorated in order of their precedence. 
The sooner you sign up on Patreon, the higher you'll be on the lists of the History of the Papacy patrons. Now let us commemorate the Patreon patrons on the History of the Papacy diptychs. We have Roberto, Joran, William B., Brian, Christina, Sarah, William H., Augustus, Keanu, and Judy at the Alexandria level. We have Doppo, Paul, Justin, Lana, John, Steve, Alex, and Sean, all of whom are magnificent at the Constantinople level and reaching that ultimate power and prestige, that of the Sea of Rome. We have Peter the Great. Frederick the Great, Geoffrey the Great, and Jim the Great. And with that, here is the next piece of the mosaic of the history of the Popes of Rome and Christian Church. Now that we've squared away, or at least made a very good attempt at squaring away, the history of the translation of the Septuagint, let's talk about some text features of the Septuagint. And I am joined, as always, on all things Bible with Gary Stevens of the History in the Bible podcast. Gary, how are you this fine morning, evening, somewhere in between? I am fine. fine, Thank you. And hello, people. So I think a good place for us to start off is the versions of the Old Testament text. And now, for convenience sakes, I might call it the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, just the text. These aren't the most accurate or religiously sensitive names for the text, but I think that'll get the point across, at least to get um, everybody on the same page. But the problem is, we're trying to talk about an anthology of different texts that by themselves go by a variety of different names, and we'll get all into all of that. And we're also talking about a variety of texts, that a really diversity of texts and textual traditions in the 2nd and the 3rd centuries uh, BC. So the big question is, what text did the Alexandrian translators translate into Greek? And the assumption is there was one singular text that the Alexandrians translated. We know that the Alexandrians at least initially only translated the first five books, a.k.a. the Torah, which is Hebrew for teaching, or the Pentateuch, which is the Greek word for the five books. And that's something we're going to be doing quite a bit here is What does the Hebrew name translate into English? What does the Greek name translate into English? Because it's not always the same. And over the course of the decades and hundreds of years, the rest of the Tanakh were translated. Gary, maybe you could quickly just tell us, what's the the difference between the Torah and the Tanakh? The Tanakh is the Hebrew name for the entire Bible. The Torah is the name for the first five books of the Bible, which are often called the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, they are the core of the Bible from the Jewish point of view, and they are, they are, they are the books supposedly written by Moses. And so um, over the course of decades and really over a hundred years, the rest of the Tanakh was translated, the Torah first, the Tanakh. So again, what were they translating? Uh, I'm sure the people are screaming that into their iPads and phones and whatever, what got translated. And it was the early books, like the first five books that were translated 
first, then slowly the rest was translated. And that if you look at the Septuagint, what scholars would say is the first five books were translated much more dynamically. And we talked about that in the in previous episodes, dynamically, meaning that the translators were looking for the feeling of the book more so than just an absolute word-for-word translation. Later books were translated much more literally. Was that a change in point of view or an intended audience? It um, it just came up this very day in school. I was talking with my students about the Inferno, and a lot of the really early translations and the classical ones that probably older folks like us read in maybe high school or college were very wooden translations, but they've come up with some newer translations. I think it's Holland and Holland that's much more tries to capture the flow of the document. And you've talked about a version of the Bible translation that's trying to catch much more of the the poetic flow of it. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's called The Shocking Bible by Rabbi Fox, and he tries really hard to reproduce the the cadence, cadence is a good word, the cadence of the Hebrew and the wordplay and put it into English. Now, that would be a really, really hard thing to do, it seems to me. This is not something you could knock off even like a chapter a day, I would have thought. It's more like a chapter a week. And you'd have to be really fluent in both languages, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you, I mean, even something, as far as I know, with the, the Inferno, that medieval Tuscan Italian is mm. not that incredibly far from modern Tuscan Italian, where in this we're talking in the Septuagint, you're talking about Hebrew that's been changed over time. Uh, Gil Kidron will we'll keep bringing his name up of the podcast of Biblical Proportions. He talks a lot about that different parts of the Bible are written in older and newer forms of Hebrew, even within that time period where the way verbs were conjugated and verb tenses changed. And you can see an archaic change. So that's a very difficult process. It has to be somebody who not only knows, you know, if you put yourself back in the third century BC, somebody has to know Greek expertly well, and they have to know various registers of Hebrew and Aramaic really well. Yeah. yeah. So whoever did the translating was certainly decent scholars. Yeah, you would uh, assume. Now, um, that brings up the issue of something called cage translation, or I'm assuming it's pronounced cage. It's spelled, if you're looking out there, K-A-I-G-E. And that was the process that later Greek translators meant, which um, it was more meant where the the Torah was translated, and even at times it was translated to fit into Greek literary styles. The later translations were trying to translate it into Greek, but you still using Hebrew literary styles. Mm. So I think that that's, later translations would have seemed maybe more awkward, I think, to the Greek audience who wasn't accustomed to Hebrew literary styles. 
Steve here. We are a member of the Parthenon Podcast Network featuring great shows like Scott Rank's History Unplugged podcast and other great podcasts. Go to ParthenonPodcast.com to learn more. And here is a quick word from our sponsors. We all know that hard times create hard men, hard men create good times, good times create soft men, soft men create hard times. That's how the cycle of history works, right? Well, as guest Dan Carlin explains, that's not exactly the case. You had mentioned, you know, what we had talked about with Kennedy being elected because, you know, who did better with the debate or who's going to lower my taxes or all these banal things two years before 100 million plus people are killed in a thermonuclear war, right? Did you elect the right guy then? To listen to more of this History Unplugged interview with Dan Carlin about why the end is always near, search for History Unplugged on the podcast player of your choice. But, I mean, would you be prepared to speculate why it it moved basically from a dynamic to a more stilted Greek style? Is this, I mean, is this because as the books were translated later and later, whoever was doing the translating decided that, uh, no, it's the Hebrew that's the sacred language and we really have to stick to it as closely as it is possible to do so in this pagan language Greek. Whereas when they started off, it was, no, we want to make this accessible to Greek-speaking Jews who do not speak Hebrew. That's a great speculation. And since we're not scholars or academics, we can throw off any scholarly hat and speculate. I think that maybe earlier on, it maybe that that even though the whole uh, letter of Aristides was anachronistic, maybe there really was a kernel of truth in there that it really truly was Greeks who were translating it, and they just didn't know any better that you translate this. They knew Hebrew, but they were maybe intending it for the audience of the Ptolemies Mm -hmm. in Egypt, or this was really one of the first instances of translation, and that dynamic one was a... a, um, maybe a more sloppy translation and the later translators wanted to keep something a tighter translation to honor the the whole sense of the hebrew text like it became a more conservative because i think that that's really what it it comes down to is that more dynamic translation is a you know not to not using them in a political sense but a more liberal translation you're really going for that meaning where i think if you're going for the more word for word translation it's a more conservative mindset mm-hmm. even though you're really trying to go for the same thing that you want an accurate translation i think somebody who's maybe going has got the dial turned more to dynamic is going to be a little more loosey goosey with it yeah exactly Uh, So the oldest Septuagint fragments come from the second century BC, and the fun fact of that is possibly the oldest fragment of the Septuagint found was in the cartoonage or the funerary wrapping material used in Hellenistic era mummies, uh, particularly in the funeral masks. Uh, Have you ever seen those, Gary? They're pretty amazing. They're very different than ancient Egyptians. They make them, if this is what they're talking about, I didn't do too much research, but I've seen late Hellenistic, early Roman ones at at a museum uh, presentation. And it was, um, they make them, they tried to make them look like realistic faces on there. But um, 
also found in that same cartoonage was a text fragment from the Iliad. And that was one of, I believe, one of the oldest, older versions of the Iliad. So presumably uh, these old used up parchments were already discarded. So somebody's not writing a fresh uh, copying of the Septuagint and then just instantly wrapping up a mummy. That's garbage that they were using, presumably at least. It sounds like that there were sort of ancient garbage dumps, which um, people making what were, I suppose, in effect, paper mache masks or something. Yeah. Um, Just raided. Look at all this stuff, little fragments and bits, just what we need, guys. Yeah, you're done. You've basically read out your Septuagint, Mm. which I believe scrolls, which that would have been scrolls. This is a little off the path, but scrolls wore out faster than uh, codices did, uh, which we'll get into in a little bit. But people, I've read that codices would get worn through through the reading process a little Mm -hmm. bit quicker than books. So that might have been, you know what, I've spun, rewound my (laughs) Septuagint too many times, and it's just not, it's not holding together anymore. It goes into the the scrap heap. So that kind of says too, I'm just thinking of this off the top of my head, the sacredness of the text might not have been there. If it's just something that is getting reused, it's Mm. not getting chucked in a Geneser uh, because you can't do anything else with it, which a Geneser was a place where sacred documents were stored basically because they couldn't be destroyed. So you just threw them into the proverbial attic. Yeah. Now, the initial thought, let's talk a little bit about the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the initial thought was, by scholars after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, was there was one Old Testament text, and the text was copied almost exactly through to what is now known as the Masoretic text, the text used by modern rabbinical Jews, Protestants, and with a couple of asterisks, the Roman Catholics. And basically what people were, what early scholars were saying was that the Septuagint had certain corruptions that were either mistakes in translations or added later for some reason. But further scholarship has shown that that's not exactly the case. The Masoretic text is accurate and consistent with earlier texts, but so is the Septuagint. There wasn't necessarily one singular text, an Ur text, a proto-text, or the fancy word that Gary discovered, the forlaga, uh, and that there was a diversity of text and textual traditions, and the texts of individual books were in various states of editing, editing versions, editing additions, and meaning that the texts were evolving. The Septuagint captured a certain edition of that text at a certain time in history, and at one time, not too long ago, scholars wrote off the Septuagint as a historical oddity, but now it's gr- a growing field of biblical studies. Oh, okay. I didn't know that it had been sort of I suppose you get relegated to the sidelines. And we'll get into some of the problems that came up in the early discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls and why that pushed back Septuagint studies for a while. The Septuagint has taken a couple of hits over the course of 
two and a half thousand years that we'll see why it went that way. Let's talk about the organization of the text, the Hebrew and the group and the Greek. Most of this is old hands for history, uh, listeners of the history in the Bible and the history of the papacy, but it's worth reviewing. Um, Gary, can you maybe give us the general overview of how the Hebrew Old Testament Bible is organized? The Hebrew Bible is organized into three parts, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. And the word for Bible Tanakh is simply an, an acronym of those three sections. The Torah, as we said, is the most important section and the five books of Moses. The Nevi'im, the prophets, are what, we, are what we would call the major history books. So Kings, you know, Judges, Joshua, through to what we would call proper prophets, uh, like Isaiah and Ezekiel. And the final big miscellaneous mashup section is uh, the writings, which are things like uh, Psalms, uh, the wisdom literature, Job, etc. And also interesting, interestingly, uh, the books of Chronicles uh, dumped into the writings because no one ever loves Chronicles. And it was considered, even though it sort of duplicates roughly the books of Kings, and it was just stuck in there. Uh, in the prophets also, one major difference to Christian Bibles is that the 12 minor prophets who are simply called well, they are grouped as one uh, entity, and they are simply called the Twelve, probably because you could fit all the Twelve Minor Prophets onto a single scroll. And it's only Christians who decided to divide them into 12 books. Modern English language, uh, Jewish Bibles, often follow the Christian division sort of. So, for example, they'll have a section, the Twelve, and then they will say then they will list the components of the 12, <clears throat> Malachi, Micah, etc., etc. So in the Hebrew Bible, it's divided into three big sections. Steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors. And that'll get into a couple of points that we get into later is that scrolls were not just some willy-nilly thing. They had a format, and it was generally 20 sheets of parchment would come together to make a scroll and that was that's a a pretty consistent format even if the sizes of the sheets were different because you have to remember and gary and i did an episode on this uh, way back uh bc or bc before covid about scrolls versus codices and you have to remember the way that papyrus was made a sheet could come out really big or really small. And the same thing with um, papyrus and parchment. Parchment was, if the animal was a different size, you get different sizes of parchment out of it. With the papyrus, if the, the individual pieces of, is the plant called papyrus? I think it is. Whatever the reed is, yes. it um, you'll get different size sheets out of it. It's really not until paper comes along, which it... Paper doesn't come into the West until the high Middle Ages that you can get more consistency in the, in the sizes of pages. Now, the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, like Gary was saying, they have some similarities and they have some differences. And now, in naming conventions, there's a big difference, especially in the Torah or the first five books. 
The first, the Greek names of the first five law books are based on the content. The Hebrews are based on the first word or two of the text. So Greek, we get our word Genesis, which means beginning or origin, where the Hebrew, I'm going to really apologize for the Hebrew. I'm Somebody's probably screaming, Brishit, something. I, I think it's Bereshit. Bereshit, which means yeah in the beginning, which is the first couple of words of the text. The um, the Greek for the second book is Exodus, which is the road out, leaving, departure, and the Hebrew is Shema, which means names, which in the first couple of words is the word names, and then they name off, I think, the name of Moses or something, I don't quite recall. In that the third book, the Greek calls it Leviticus, which is uh, in regards to the Levitical law, the Hebrew is the... Gary, would you um, phone a friend on yeah. that? Sorry, you're on your own there. <laughs> it's the no Vikra, Vikra, which it says, and God called. Number four is Greek, which in Greek is numbers, and that's numbering or census of the Hebrews. The Hebrew is Bombadar, which is in the wilderness. And then finally... The Greek for the fifth book is Deuteronomy, meaning the second law. And then in Hebrew, it's Devarim, or words. And the Masoretic text and the Septuagint organize these books and categories differently. The Torah or the Pentateuch stays the same, but like Gary was saying, the Christians and the Jews, and the, even in the, the um the Septuagint translators kind of sliced and diced some of those books together in a different order. Yeah, uh, one good example would be Daniel. Actually, in the in the Christian tradition, he's considered one of the major prophets. In the Hebrew tradition, he's considered a bit of a whack job, and he's stuck in the writings. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk a lot about that when we get into Christianity and the Septuagint. Inside of the books, there's some different passages as well. Uh, passages were rearranged, and some passages are inserted or deleted. So, for example, the Septuagint uh, changed the name for Job's third daughter for some reason. So, in Hebrew, it was Karen Hapach or which was Ham, or child of beauty, where the Greek Septuagint, for some reason, calls her Amaltheos Keras, which is a Greek mythological character who fed Zeus as a child and um, broke off her horn or something. It, it's a very weird uh, change. Like, that's one of the main ones that, right. like, and that maybe that's a dynamic change that they made for some reason that gave a certain... It gave a, a Greek audience something that they were really looking for? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, Amaltheus, maybe Amaltheus was so well known. Oh, I don't know. Under a very specific context that somehow, I, I mean, I think that's a weird one. Uh, one of the ones that has more theological uh, is significance is uh, the young maiden or virgin Alma from Isaiah 714. In Hebrew, it's Alma, which is young woman, a young unmarried woman at, at that time who have uh, presumably been a virgin, where in the Septuagint, they very specifically use the term parth parthenos, which means it's virgin explicitly. So clearly the Greek language has a word for a girl or a young girl. It's um 
Kori or Nea Gynakia Gynaika in modern Greek, but it probably that probably didn't change tremendously from ancient or older Greek. So why pick Parthenos over another translation? There clearly must have been a theological reason or some reason why they picked that particular term over generic young maiden. This is just the tip of the iceberg on the Septuagint. Keep your ears out and your podcatchers caught up for the next episode as Gary and I delve into even more fascinating issues on this most incredible and really important document in Christian history. Talk to you next time.